Good morning. If you would, please turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. We'll be looking at verses 7 and 8 specifically here this morning. It's uh, a privilege to be able to, uh, to share with you some things that uh, God has been teaching me and I think teaching our whole group. And uh, really, when it comes down to it, uh, some things that were the foundation of our trip to the Dominican Republic. And uh, as we go through this, I think that uh, you'll be able to see how God blessed our trip, but blessed it because of uh, His glory and because of His intentions, not because of anything that we did. And I'd like to, uh, in the context here of Philippians 3, um, share that with you a little bit. So if you could, please stand as we read God's Word. Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. Paul says, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the surpassing value of Jesus Christ. And God, I pray just even as we look at your word here this morning, that you would open our eyes to understand even more and at an even clearer level just the spectacular value that Jesus holds, and God, that we would just have a yearning and a desire to know Jesus more as a result. I pray this in your name. Amen. Be seated. You know, I think it's a universal truth that life is hard. I think I can say that without too much reservation, whether it be issues of health or job or finances, family issues, relationship issues. Life is hard, and I think that was one thing that that hit us hard on our trip to the Dominican Republic as we saw the quality of life of most people there in the Dominican and what it took to go through life just on a moment-by-moment, day-by-day basis. But life is, is difficult. In fact, even in lives where we see God's blessing being abundantly poured out, there are still seasons of difficulty, seasons where life is hard. You know, we, we try to teach our children, in fact, we wince as we see our children learning the difficult lesson that life is hard. You know, what's one of the first lessons that, uh, that children encounter and one of the first things they hear from their parents? Children will come and say, well, that's not fair. And what do we say? Life's not fair. Life's hard. There are difficult things in life. And one of the results of this is that we begin to look to God as our rescuer from life, our rescuer from the circumstances in life. We look to him to fix our problems, to make us happy, to ease our pain. God becomes our rescuer. And the temptation, which unfortunately many fall into, is that the gospel message itself comes all about how God can rescue us from life's circumstances. We allow ourselves to view the gospel and to be shaded by our own circumstances into what our desires are. And before we know it, the gospel becomes man-centered. The gospel comes all, becomes all about us. What can God do for me? And we lose sight of the fact that the Bible says that the gospel, that life, is all about God and his glory. And we have to keep that in mind. We, we can't mess that up. That's, that's foundational to our understanding of everything that there is in life, that life is about God and his glory. The gospel is about God and his glory. It's not about us. It's not about what God can do for us. We take a step back and we say, well, why did God even create the world? Why did, why did God go to the trouble? I and mean, we cause him all kinds of headache and heartache. Why does God create the world? 
Was he bored? Was he lonely? Did he need the praise from created people? Why would God bother to create the world? Well, I think we get a glimpse of this a little bit in Genesis chapter 1. You can just listen to this. This is probably a familiar passage. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. It says three times in those two verses that God created man in his own image. Do you think much about what that means? Why, what does it mean that God created us in his own image? What's the, what was the purpose or why is that important that God created us in his own image. You know, I, I think that uh, one of the primary purposes of God's creation was to reflect his glory. He created us in his image to reflect his image, to reflect the glory of his image. And then as man, starting with Adam and then all of us equally guilty along the way, have screwed up that plan, haven't we? Romans says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's what sin is. Sin is when we fall short of God's glory. We fall short of fulfilling our original intended purpose, to reflect the glory of God. Now, God's plan wasn't thwarted because we fell because of our sin. God's plans can never be derailed. But we did contaminate God's image when sin entered the world. So ultimately, the essence of the gospel, if we think of it in these terms, the essence of the gospel is to restore man to the image of God, to restore man to, the, to reflecting God's glory. So here, we, we can't understand necessarily everything that God intends or what God's full plan is. I, I wouldn't uh, pretend to think that I have a grasp on that, but the Bible does give us um, a starting point for understanding where God is going and what God's intentions are overall in his grand universal plan. We can understand that man was created to reflect God's glory and that man fell because of sin And that God, as a result, sent Jesus Christ to earth as God in the flesh to live a perfect and holy life for the sole purpose of being that ultimate sacrifice for man to give us a way, not just to grant us heaven, which we get caught up in, or to grant us joy or peace or happiness, but to give us a way that we would be covered by the blood of Jesus and be able to come into God's presence perfect and holy, reflecting God's glory as God intended all along. So God not only saves people, but he sanctifies them. God, first, first he saves us. He calls us out of sin, calls us out of darkness. He gives us a new heart. He changes us over the course of time in sanctifying us to be more and more into the image of Christ. So we're more and more coming closer to reflecting the glory of God until that ultimate day when we reach heaven and we're glorified in the presence of God and we perfectly reflect God's glory through Christ's righteousness in us, changing us to where we are without sin and reflecting God's glory as he intended. So the gospel is all about God's glory, how he is going to reflect his glory in us. It's not about us. Now you say, wait a minute, wait a minute. There's all kinds of good things the Bible promises to me out of the gospel. I get saved, I get to go to heaven. God causes all things to work together for good. Right? There's all these things that are me-oriented in the gospel. And, and uh, sure, it's about God, but it's about me too. Let's look at this a little bit more closely this morning, and I promise we're going to get back to uh, Philippians 3. 
Um, but if you look over at Romans chapter 8, let's look at that passage where God causes all things to work together for good. Romans chapter 8 and verse 28 says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. So there's three things that I want to just quickly pull out of this passage. Number one, God does cause all things to work together for good, but it doesn't say that he does that for every single person who ever lives or ever will live. There's a specific group of people. So the second thing is, who does God cause things to work together for good? For those who love God and are called according to his purpose, right? That's the promise. But then we get run into that sticky question of, what does it mean to work things together for good? What is the good that God is working together for? Let's keep reading here in verse 29. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. You see that? The context here is God causes all things to work together for good towards the end of conforming those that he called into the image of his son, into the image of Jesus. That's what the good is is all about. God causes everything in life to work for the purpose of conforming those that he's called into the image of his son. Everything in life revolves around that. Verse 30 says, For whom he predestined, these he also called, and whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. So there's this process that God takes us through. He calls people to himself. He calls us out of our sin, and then he justifies us. What does that mean? It means he declares us righteous. He says, he says, because of the blood of Jesus, I no longer see you as the sinful person that you are, but I see you through the lens of Jesus. I see you as righteous and perfect. Now, we know that we're not, but then God goes to complete his plan and he sanctifies us over the course of the process, changing us more and more through the course of time, through our walk with him, to look more and more like Jesus as we are sanctified and as we grow and mature in our lives as believers until that ultimate day of glorification. Now, you you think about that? God is going to glorify us. We talk all the time, and in fact, everything I've talked about so far this morning has been about God and his glory, but God is going to glorify us. That's what the Bible says. We are to be glorified ultimately in that day. So what does it mean to be glorified? It means that God is going to make us so that we reflect his glory, that we are perfect and righteous in the very presence of God. It culminates in our glorification. And somehow, God, we, we have to come to understand that God glorifies us to glorify himself. You say, wait, does that really make sense? Well, this is what he does with Jesus. Listen to Jesus' prayer in the, the high priestly prayer, John chapter 17, verse 1. It says, Jesus spoke these things, and lifting his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. So Jesus is praying, God, glorify me so that I can glorify you. And you say, okay, well, that was Jesus. Well, God is doing the same thing with us. God wants to glorify us so that we can glorify him. Now, when we're talking about glorifying Jesus, God restored Jesus to the glory that he had before he came to earth, before he humbled himself and died on the cross. For us, he restores us to our original created purpose. We were created to reflect the glory of God And God is going to restore us, glorify us, so that we reflect his glory as he originally intended. So God saves his people, a sinful people. He justifies them. He declares them righteous. Then he sanctifies them, making them more and more like him. 
And then he promises to complete that work. What does it say in Philippians 1.6? That I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. God will be faithful to complete what he started. And he completes that in our glorification in heaven as he uh, makes us righteous before him. So now with this context, let's look at Philippians chapter 3 and verse 8 again. Paul says, more than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That's what I really want to zero in on this morning. As Paul says, I count all things as loss compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I was talking to uh, my sister Bethany last night, and I put it this way. What's so good about knowing Jesus? Um, you know, we all get excited about Jesus and knowing Jesus and being saved, but most of the time I think that that's within the context of, I know Jesus, I go to heaven. I know Jesus, I don't go to hell. And that's, our, uh, that's, that's the driving perspective of knowing Jesus. But Paul is saying, nothing else matters compared to knowing Jesus. That's what's most important above all else. For Paul, everything was about knowing Jesus. Back here in, in, in uh, chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, Paul gives his resume. He says, I was circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, which is the law found blameless. Then he says in verse 7, but whatever things were gained to me, these things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Paul is listing off everything that man could ever possibly care about in life. He's giving his pedigree, he's giving his accomplishments, he's giving his theological understanding, he's giving his, his level of, of, uh, of human holiness. Um, he's listing everything that the world would say, yes, Paul, you have arrived. And he says, none of it matters. None of it matters compared to knowing Jesus. That's what's most important. He says, in fact, here in verse 8, that, it, that uh, he says, I suffer the loss of all things and count them but rubbish. He says, this is garbage. It's trash compared to knowing Jesus. You know, this is familiar um, with what uh, Jesus was saying in Matthew chapter 13, in verse 44. Jesus is talking about the kingdom of heaven, and he says, It's like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. That the kingdom of heaven is worth so much that a man says, I'm going to sell everything I have so I can go and, and I can have that treasure. And Jesus is the king of the kingdom of heaven. Paul's saying, I, I want the king. I want Jesus. Jeremiah chapter 9 says, Thus says the Lord, Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, and let not a mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord. Paul saying, don't, or uh, Jeremiah saying, uh, or uh, quoting God, is saying, don't boast about Anything else in this life other than knowing me. Nothing else matters but knowing me. Know me. And Paul is saying the same thing. Nothing matters compared to knowing Jesus. Everything else is trash. Now this word to know is interesting. Specifically means to have, not to have knowledge of in an intellectual sense, but to know in an intimate sense. The word is gnosis, which implies to know um, experientially, to, uh, to know personally or to have personal involvement with. There is an intimacy indicated in this, in this word. Um, it's the, the, uh, the equivalent word in the Hebrew is the word yada, um, which we first see in the Bible, in the book of Genesis, um, where it says, uh, it says, Adam knew his wife and she bore a son. 
It's the, same, it's the same word. Now, Adam, it's not saying that Adam knew who his wife was. He knew who Eve was. He certainly did. But he knew her in an intimate sense. There was an intimate relationship between Adam and Eve. In Amos chapter 3, we see the same word come up again. God is speaking and he says, Israel only I have known. Now, God's not saying, I only know the people of Israel. I don't know anybody else in the world. But he's saying, only with Israel I have this special, intimate relationship. That there is an intimacy, there's a closeness, there's a personal relationship between Israel and God. And this is what uh, the word that Paul uses here in, in uh, Philippians 8. He says, I want to know Christ Jesus. I don't want to just know about him, but I want to have this intimate, close, personal relationship with him. And it's interesting that he says, not just Christ Jesus, but he says, Christ Jesus, my Lord. He wants to know him intimately as his Lord, as his King. You know, this is the heart of the gospel to, uh, to know Jesus. Jesus says in John 10, I know my sheep and they know me. Following up in that uh, high priestly prayer in John 17, Jesus says, Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life is intrinsically linked to knowing God by knowing Jesus Christ. It's all about knowing Jesus. In comparison, nothing else matters. Now here's where all this gets tied together, that we have to have the proper perspective of the gospel to understand this. We understand that the gospel is all about giving God glory, and that he accomplishes this through us as his creation by saving us to the purpose of glorifying him, restoring us to the image of God, and we live according to the purpose of our creation, according to how God designed us, God designed us to reflect his glory, then we experience the ultimate that life has to offer. When we live according to how we've been created, that is the ultimate in life. There's nothing in this world that can compare with living in perfect alignment with how God created us to live. Nothing can compare with living a life that brings glory to God. And that's where perfect fulfillment in life comes from. And it's based, above all else, on knowing Jesus. You want perfect alignment in your life? You want perfect fulfillment? It's all about knowing Jesus, and knowing Jesus is all about giving glory to God. I want to give you, uh, to give you two things that result from knowing Jesus. To kind of spell this out a little bit. First of all, we see the glory of God reflected in Jesus. We see the glory of God reflected in Jesus. Secondly, the glory of God is reflected in the believer. So first, the glory of God is reflected in Jesus. We see this um, in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. It says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Paul says here to the Corinthians that God shines the light on our hearts to give us knowledge of the glory of God, and we have knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Turn back in, to Philippians 2 as we look at... Uh, Paul setting the stage before he goes to uh, what he wrote there in Philippians 3. And starting in verse 5, this very well-known passage, Paul says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." So here we have God of creation coming to earth, being sacrificed on a cross made of wood that he created by people that he created, demonstrating the ultimate form of humility so that he could restore us to himself 
so that he could restore us for the purpose of being sanctified, glorified, to reflecting God's glory. Jesus bore our sins in his death for us. He took what we deserved and put it on him. And it's just, it's, it's an amazing thought to think that he was sacrificed by his own creation. But then look at what happens here in verse 9. Therefore also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See how this works? Jesus is exalted because of the cross, and the exaltation of Jesus leads to the glory of God. Every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The exaltation of Jesus leads to the glory of God. So if our lives are centered for the purpose of giving God glory, what we have to do above all else is exalt Jesus. Jesus must be exalted in our lives. And when we exalt Jesus, God is glorified. So when we know Jesus, we know him intimately, we love him for as he is and for what he did for his death on the cross, we recognize him as God in the flesh, We recognize that he humbled himself to die on Calvary as the perfect sacrifice for sinful people. When we know him in this way, that results in us recognizing him as Lord, recognizing him as Savior, recognizing him as King. And when we confess Jesus as Lord, it's to the glory of God the Father. That gives God glory when we see Jesus in that way. Paul said here in in Philippians 3.8, he says, I want to know Jesus Christ my Lord. That's where the key is. For he, he doesn't want to just know him, but he wants to know him as Lord, as he says there in Philippians 2. This gives glory to God. This is what we were created for, to bring glory to God. 1 Corinthians 2.2, 2, Paul says, For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you, except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul's life is all about Jesus and the cross, Jesus and the cross, over and over. Everything in life comes back to Jesus and the cross because life is about giving glory to God. And when we exalt Jesus, we exalt the cross, God is glorified. That's the way that God has designed it. So number one, we see the glory of God reflected in Jesus. Number two, the glory of God is reflected in the believer. Turn, if you will, over to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. Peter says, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of our Lord. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these things he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises in order that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. First of all, note he says here in... in, uh, in verse uh, 2, or verse 3, I'm sorry, he says, he's talking about true knowledge of him. He's granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through a true knowledge of him. And then he goes on about that true knowledge, he says, who called us by his own glory and excellence. Very quickly, note that God calls people by the glory and excellence of Jesus. God calls people to himself through the glory and excellence of of Jesus, The glory being God's exaltation of Jesus through the cross, his excellence being his purity, his holiness. God calls people to himself through the glory and excellence of Jesus. He doesn't call people to himself through the promise of heaven. 
He doesn't call people to himself through the promise of happiness, joy, peace. Although all these things are true, he calls people to himself through the glory and excellence of Jesus Christ. That's why we exalt Jesus. That's how, what we, how we evangelize. We exalt Jesus in our lives, and that's what the instrument that God uses to call people to himself. But when we know Jesus, look at what happens. It says here in verse, th- in verse uh, 3 that uh, he gives to us, he grants to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Everything pertaining to life and godliness. What more is there? That's everything. He grants to you everything pertaining to life and godliness. Everything you need to live life how God wants you to live, to work it out for good, to be perfected, ultimately to be sanctified and glorified. God has granted that to you for his purpose. And then this part just blows me away here in verse 4. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises in order that by them you may become partakers of the, of the divine nature. Now I'll tell you, I, I, I can't fully swallow what that means to be a partaker of the divine nature. That's an that's a awfully big bite to swallow, that we are partakers of the divine nature. But I can tell you this, that what we know from, from this passage and from plenty of others in God's word is that God comes into us when we are called, and he changes us, he transforms us. We have the divine nature in us living out our lives. That God takes control of our lives as we repent and we, and we yield that to him. And we can have, as a result, and we can know the same joy, the same state of contentment, the same happiness, the same peace. We can have the same victory over sin that Jesus has because we are partakers of the divine nature. When we know Jesus, bring, this back, bring it back here to uh, verses 2 and 3. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of, of Jesus our Lord. And then he says, seeing that his divine power has been granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him. And that him ties back to Jesus. That it all comes from knowing Jesus that God grants this to us. The basis is knowing Jesus and then God gives us everything that we need in life. John 1.16 says, For of his fullness, speaking of Jesus, we have all received. We have received of the fullness of Jesus. John 10.10, Jesus said, I came that they may have life and they may have it abundantly. Abundant life comes from knowing Jesus. In Romans 8.16-18, Paul is talking about that we are fellow heirs with Christ. We inherit everything the same that Christ inherits. The same joy and peace and bliss and, um, and, and, and everything in heaven, we, inherit, we have the same inheritance as Jesus. We are joint heirs with Christ. We inherit the glory of God, the glory of heaven, and all of this comes from knowing Jesus. I wonder Paul says, I value knowing Jesus above all else. 1 Corinthians 3.11 says, For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And skipping to verse 21. So then let no one boast in men, Catch this. For all things belong to you. Paul says all things belong to you. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all things belong to you and you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. All things belong to you. Paul belongs to you. Apollos belongs to you. Cephas belongs to you. The world belongs to you. Life belongs to you. Death belongs to you. Things present belong to you. Things to come belong to you. Christ belongs to you. All things belong to you. Isn't that an amazing promise? If your life is built on Jesus, if you know Jesus, then all things belong to you. 
All the great teachers, Paul and Cephas and all the, all the teachers of the world belong to you. You have all that truth and knowledge belongs to you. You possess the world. The world, as we know from Genesis, was made for you. Life is yours. Spiritual, eternal life is yours in Christ. We even possess death, as Paul says, to die is gain. We possess death. We possess things present, which, which encompasses every element in life, everything in this life, everything we experience, the good, the bad, the pleasant, the painful, the joys, the disappointments, health, sickness. God gave it all together, all to us to work together for good for the purpose of leading to his glory, for conforming us to the image of his son. We, and we possess the things to come, eternal reward, the glories of heaven, the new heaven, the new earth, the millennial kingdom, We belong to Christ, Christ belongs to God, and it's all wrapped up in the same package of what's promised to us. And all this comes from knowing Jesus. Colossians 2, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him you have been made complete. In Jesus, you're made complete. Saying, don't be taken captive by the world. Don't let your attention be captured by the things of the world. Don't try to know the world. Know Jesus. Be captive, captivated by Jesus. Because in him, you've been made complete. Paul says in Romans 8, verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him Freely give us all things. Paul is saying, God gave us Jesus. He poured out his wrath on his son Jesus for you. If God gave you the absolute most that anybody could ever give to anyone, how is it that he's going to hold back to you in the least? God will give you all that you need. You see the perfect alignment here in God's design? We seek his glory above all else. God's glory is the focus of all of our attention. And he in turn grants to us everything in life. Because that's what we're designed to do, to bring glory to God. And when we do that, we have abundant life. This is the surpassing value of knowing Jesus. I want to very quickly give you four ways to better know Jesus, or four ways to cultivate your relationship with Jesus. Number one, relish the magnitude of the cross. Relish the magnitude of the cross. We're all sinners. I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. Everyone in this room, we're all sinners. We have to come face to face with how does God feel about our sin? You know that God is angry at you and me because of our sin. It says, um, you, 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 maybe you come back and you say, uh, wait a minute. God loves the sinner but hates the sin. Some of you may even say, hey, I've seen bumper stickers that say that. It's got to be true. You know what? That's not in the Bible. Um, Actually, that's a quote from uh, Mahatma Gandhi, the Hindu. Um, Psalm 5.5, as well as a plethora of other verses, says that God hates all who do evil. And evil is any sin that we commit. God hates all who do evil. It's a scary thought. We sin, God hates. You say, well, no, no, God loves us but he hates what we do. Well, here's the unfortunate reality. We do what we are. We do what we are. What's in our hearts comes out in what we do. 
Good trees produce good fruit. Bad trees produce bad fruit. You are what you do. You do bad things. You sin. You're an evildoer. And that means that you are the object of God's wrath. You're the object of God's hate. What you do out in life is an echo or a reflection of what's in your heart. That we're sinners by nature. And you say, no, I'm a, I'm a good person deep down. Really, I just do bad things, but I'm really a good person. But even we, us thinking that we're good people is a sign of our own sinfulness, that we mask the reality of who we really are. Yes, there's a sense in which God loves us in our sin, but we can't get past the fact that God is angry at us because of our sin. And if he's not angry, then he's not holy, he's not just, he's not loving. He must punish sin. Now, there's one catch to all this, that when we know Jesus, God's no longer angry at us. 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God, became sin on our behalf. So all that righteous wrath and anger of God was poured out on Jesus. And then it says, the end of that verse, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Again, bringing that all back. We are made righteous because God poured out his wrath on Jesus. So there's this great exchange that takes place. Apart from the cross, we are doomed to eternal conscious torment in hell for all of eternity. If you know Jesus, then you're saved to the glory of heaven. Doesn't seem like a fair deal, does it? We get heaven even because of our sin. Jesus got the wrath of God. But if you don't know Jesus, then you are doomed for eternal punishment as God pours out his wrath on you for all of eternity. So if you know Jesus and you want to know him more, relish the magnitude of the cross and you'll know Jesus better. I love the quote and I've used this over and over with the high school group and probably in other settings. Um, But C.J. Mahaney, a pastor of of a church on the East Coast, has said, look, before I can dare to preach the gospel to God's people, I have to first look in the mirror and preach the gospel to myself. I think that's absolutely true. We have to be continually preaching the gospel to ourselves over and over again. We must relish the cross and when we relish the cross, we will know Jesus better. Secondly, we need to be trained to see God's divine power, to see Jesus' divine power all around us. In 2 Peter, it said that his uh, divine power grants to us everything pertaining to life through the true knowledge of him. God's divine power grants to us everything in life. We were in the Dominican Republic, you heard, everybody got sick on Tuesday night. Um, And uh, it was an eventful night, to say the least. Um, We spent the night going back and forth to the hospital. Um, amazingly over the course of the night we had people just throwing up and all kinds of bad stuff happening we had people hooked up at IVs getting rehydrated and so forth in the hospital and um, over the course of the night um, people got worse and then they started getting better and, and, and uh, amazingly we had to leave on Wednesday morning at 9.30 amazingly um, by Wednesday morning pretty much everybody was doing better um, and uh, we got to about 7 o'clock and there were about 4 people that were not looking so good, but they were seeming like they were going to be okay, at least three of them. But the fourth one, Miss Ali Shara, was not doing well. And uh, the doctor said, uh, comes to us at about 8 o'clock, and he says, um, he says, uh, Ali is not going to be able to go home today. He says, I just can't, she hasn't gone more than 30 minutes in the last eight hours without vomiting. Um, she just, you know, I just can't. I can't um, see putting her on a plane. This is 8 o'clock. We're supposed to leave for the airport at 9.30. He 
And uh, so the doctor gives us that report, and, and uh, I call four hours previous in time zones and wake up Mike and Angela and say, hey, I don't know if uh, Allie's going to be able to come home today. It's not sounding good. Um, well, the doctor comes in and reiterates that to us. And as she's saying this to us, and you can ask Allie, she doesn't even remember most of the story. But Ramon Prenzo walks in. Ramon is the founder of the orphanage, the church, the school in the Monte Plata. Everybody in Monte Plata knows Ramon. You meet Ramon, and instantly your first thought is, this is a man of God. This is, this is somebody who knows Jesus. And you're overwhelmed by that, and he's a man of prayer. He's, he just has that presence about him. And as the doctor leaves, um, telling us Allie's not going to be able to go home today, um, Ramon says, oh, she's going home today. And uh, my sister Rebecca and I were there with him, and we, we looked over, and we said, really? Okay. And he says, we need to pray for her. And uh, Rebecca and I said, or, or thinking, we've been praying all night long. <laughs> and uh, I'm thinking, you know, go right ahead. Give it your best shot. And uh, so Ramon, Ramon says, let's pray. And uh, I said, okay. And uh, Ramon starts to pray, and he prays one of the most amazing prayers that I've ever heard. He, uh, he starts off by the most humble and, and, and uh, contrite um, posture before God. He comes before God, and, and he, but, he, but he's, he's expectant of God in his attitude and, and in his words. He has a very specific hope in God as he comes before him. He's not... He's not demanding of God of any way, but he is, he is expectant. And he prays for God to heal Allie so she can go home. And um, in the course of that prayer, he kind of shifts halfway through, and he becomes an attorney before a jury. God is the jury. And he starts making his case to God. And he says, God, remember, and he starts this I'm going to guess 15 times in a row he starts sentences with the word remember. He says, God, remember when um, so-and-so was sick and you healed them? Remember when so-and-so's brother-in-law was sick and you healed them? Remember when so-and-so left the church and was in sin and you brought them back, you restored them? Remember, remember, God, remember, remember, remember. And he just prayed this over and over again. God, remember. And then he says, God, you've been faithful in the past. We have no reason to doubt that you'll be faithful here. He says, so we pray that you'll heal Allie. So I look over at Allie um, when Ramon finishes, and he prayed all this in Spanish. I said, Allie, you ever been prayed for in Spanish before? She says, no. So I can guarantee you never been prayed for like that before. And I had to leave at that point. I had to go and, and uh, make sure everybody else was getting ready and getting things. And I said, I'm going to be back here at 9 o'clock, and we'll check to see how Allie's doing. I come back at, uh, at 9 o'clock, and Allie's like, I'm feeling better. Now, she's gone eight hours without going more than 20 or 30 minutes without vomiting. Ramon prays a prayer, and I come back an hour later. She hasn't vomited in that hour, and she's like, I think I'm feeling better. Fast forward on the story. We go ahead and we take her. The doctor says, um, you're taking her against my orders? We said, yeah. And uh, we put her on the plane. We arrive in New Jersey four hours later for our layover. I look up, and some of the kids are going off to get some food, and they're going down one of those moving sidewalks, and there's Ali Shera racing them, next to the moving sidewalk while they're running on the moving sidewalk, and she's beating all of them, running on the regular non-moving sidewalk on the ground. And then she goes to catch up with them to go get the food, and she wolfs down mass amounts of food, and I see her on the plane. She's eating a whole lot more. I, I believe we saw a real miracle, that God chose, for whatever reason, to heal Allie in that, in that time. Now, if Allie had to stay another day or two, would it have been the end of the world? No. But God chose for his purposes to heal her in that case. 
I have no doubt that, uh, that had God not healed Allie, Ramon would have just shifted immediately to say, okay, God's going to do something even better. He's going to answer this prayer in an, in an even more amazing way. But I do believe that, at least in part, that God orchestrated the events of that night so that we could share with you this morning about the power of God and how it was demonstrated on that trip. I think God wanted to make it crystal clear that all the good that happened on this trip to the Dominican Republic was because of his power and not because of our efforts. I think God wanted to put the exclamation point on this trip to make sure that we understood that. But I want to bring this back to Ramon's prayer. Ramon lives a life where he expects or he looks for God's divine power in the day-to-day of his life. He sees it all the time. And when it came time to pray, he could recite back over and over and over to God examples of God's divine power exercised in his life and in the life of the people around us. He had eyes that were trained to see God's divine power in his life. You want to know Jesus better? Train your eyes to see his divine power in everything that goes on in your life. Third, recognize his sovereignty and control. Recognize his sovereignty and control. If you want to know Jesus, um, God conforms us to his image and he works all things together for good. He works us together to know him, to, to be shaped into his image. And God's promise that he's in control of every situation leads us to accomplish exactly his purposes. A couple of very quick examples on this. Um, Ali shared about preparing for VBS. We prepared for 100 people to be at VBS. We show up, we find out there may have been up to 400. They said, oh, don't worry, we only, we only promoted this event in certain neighborhoods, but we're kind of panicking a little bit, thinking, well, if, they, you know, if word spreads, it's going to be too many or is it going to be too few? What is, we prepared for 100 people. We brought enough crafts for 150 people. Um, we said that this is exactly the limit. We had exactly 150 kids show up to the event, exactly what we were prepared for. God, um, God orchestrated the sickness on Tuesday night that we got, the first person got sick just as the last program we had scheduled for the trip that was ending. The last person got better, Allie, moments before we had to leave to go to the airport. The sickness hit us at exactly the time that it had zero impact on the ministry that we came to do on that trip. The, night is, or the, the morning of Speechless, a 17-year-old boy named Alex who had grew up in the orphanage but had abandoned the church and had abandoned... Um, the orphanage, had walked away from God, was living in total rebellion. He woke up that morning, the morning of speechless, not knowing anything about the church, and said, God wants me to go to church tonight. Little did he know that the church no longer has Sunday evening services, but for us, for that very special night, for speechless, reconvened the Sunday night service. He goes up, he goes back, shows up at the church, is hit between the eyes through the message of speechless, falls to his knees, meets with the elders afterward, and says, I need to recommit my life to the Lord. What made Alex wake up that morning and say, I need to be at church tonight? God is sovereign. God is in control. He works all things out for exactly his purposes to conform his people to his image. Last thing I want to leave you with, turn to John chapter 21. Let nothing get in the way of knowing Jesus. Let nothing get in the way of knowing Jesus. We have this picture here in John chapter 21. Jesus has died um, he's just risen again, and he's appeared to the disciples a couple of times, but kind of just through the walls, and he hasn't really had any conversations with them yet. He sees the disciples fishing. He says in verse 5, children, you don't have any fish. They said no. In verse 6, he says, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find a catch. They cast, therefore, and they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. Here's what I want you to see. 
The last time that Peter had a face-to-face conversation with Jesus, he was telling him, I'm not going to ever deny you, Jesus. And Jesus said, yes, you will, three times. Jesus denied him three times. Um, And uh, remember, Peter's eyes caught with Jesus um, right, right before the cock crowed. Peter hasn't had a conversation with Jesus since then. Can you imagine how Peter's heart must be feeling all this time? The guilt of feeling and the despair that he must feel over having um, let Jesus down, having let his own pride and his own um, selfishness get in the way of Jesus. With that in mind, picture the scene here in verse 7. That disciple, therefore, whom Jesus loved, said to Peter, It is the Lord. And so when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put his outer garment on, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from land, but about 100 yards away, dragging the net full of fish. Do you have that picture? Here's Peter just dying to be face-to-face with Jesus. He screwed up. He denied him three times, and he just so wants to be right with Jesus that they're out there fishing, they're pulling in, and one of the disciples says, oh, it's Jesus. Peter says, that's Jesus, I'm, I'm off. And he dives into the water and he's scrambling. I just see this mad dash that he's making to the shore. And the rest of the disciples are out there in the boat trying to lug in all the fish. And there's Peter just, I just want to be with Jesus. I need to be right with Jesus. Peter wasn't going to let anything get in the way of being right with Jesus. You want to know Jesus better? Relish the magnitude of the cross. See his divine power all around you. Recognize his sovereignty and control and let nothing get in the way of knowing him. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for how you bless us. God, thank you that we have the privilege of living lives that bring glory to you. God, I pray that you would move in our hearts, move in our lives, help us to um, be so committed, so focused on knowing Jesus that nothing else matters. And that in the process, God, that you are given all the glory and honor and that we can have a part in that. Pray this in your name. Amen.